Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com Series 2, The Battle of Moitura Episode 1, Echtra Nuadad, The Adventures of Nuadad The Adventures of Nuadad Nuadad stared into a palm of silver a cupped pool reflecting a refracted and shattered image of his frowning face. He held the hand up before him, flexed his fingers, and five silver rays flared like a crown around his image. So it worked to his will, then. It was more than a magnificent glove. Beads of moisture misting the new hand made it almost seem that his reflection was weeping. Shrugging, Nuada balled his stiff fingers into a fist, dismissing the mirror. He hoped he could still wield his sword. Silver mists and mirrored skies, sharp bowed ships through the waves, leading his people into a new world, netting this land for them, new opportunities for their crafting. This had been his work. A silver sword of deadly power brought, treasured from Findias, hidden city of the north, this he had warded, wielded, protecting his people. This had been his work. It was a fine land he had found for them, fruitful and free. It had broad plains like green grass lakes and wide fishful lakes like bright mirrors. This had been his work. Oh, it was a fine land, but not empty. There were the Fomora, the mysterious outsiders whom some said had come from under the sea. But they too, like the Dodonan, were strangers in the land, and maybe, maybe there could be an understanding between them, at least for a time. The Fairbolic were different. They would do battle for the land. And it had come to battle at the last. Yes, there had been a time of testing, a ceremony of sharing, when weapons had been measured and compared. But it had come to battle at the last. Nuada was a warrior, and battle was his work. Now his work was over. Oh, the battle was won, his people safe. Yochid Maquette, the Firbolag leader, dead, and the place of his people secured. Oh yes, the battle was won. But he, Nuada, had reached out for victory and failed in the grasping, for in the press of battle, Strang, the Firbolag champion, had taken his sword arm. Now, he was a blemished man, incomplete, and no blemished man could be king. Dean Kecht, the great Dodolan healer had pitied his distress, and working with Credna the Brazier, had forged from the magic of the wood and fire, herb and flowing silver, a living metal hand. Oh, it was beautiful. But it was still a blemish, and he could no longer lead his people. The silver hand moved almost without his conscious thought, following the familiar path to his sword belt. It gripped the sword hilt firmly, and Nuada drew his sword, lifted it above his head. If he could not be king, he could still fight with his people. If he could not lead, he could still follow. As he raised his eyes to the sword, the sun caught the blade, and it flowed with golden light. 
For one moment he seemed to see the face of a young man, golden and eager. Nuada smiled grimly, and the silver of the hand melded with the sun's yellow rays. He was Nuada Love Arrogate, but he dreamed of gold. All right, so this first episode is entitled um, The Adventures or the Exploits of Nuada. Or Echtra Nuada. Nuada is interesting. He's the leader of the Tour de Donna when they first arrive into the land of Ireland. And especially in their first meeting with the Ferbolog. Mind you, in one capacity or another, he's, he's there all the way through, isn't he? He's there right to the end. He is. He's cited as fighting in both the battles of Maitura. Yeah, and fairly central, although mm. particularly in the first one. Yeah. But that's the point. There are two battles of Moitura, and they're both called Moitura. You know, that used to confuse me. It used to confuse the hell out of me when I first started looking at the story. Yeah. Um, again, the, the text that we're mostly focusing on is often referred to as the second battle of Moitura, but it also includes another battle at another Moitura. The first one is said to be either southern Moitura with mm -hmm. or Moitura Kunga because it's down near Kong in sort of County Mayo. So the first battle is the south southern battle. Yes. And the second battle is the northern Moitura. The northern Moitura, which is just down the road from us here. That's south County, County Sligo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not so far away. Uh, uh, but it does get complicated in that sense. I know this saga of Moitura has really been too important to us for at least the last, oh, I don't know, 12, 13 years. Easily. But uh, where did you first come across it? Well, uh, not to sound like a, a dreadful romantic novel, I first read it in my grandmother's house. Nice, that. Yeah. She had a copy of Jim Fitzpatrick's book, The Silver Arm, and uh, it was part of her library and I sat and I read it and uh, very much enjoyed it and knew that it was touching on something very important. Yeah. I did though, I felt that there was something more to it and I suppose I always kind of wanted to find the source of the story and uh, get to know yeah. it for myself. It's funny really because I know this, it's showing my age now. <laughs> I'd already read Moitura when the Jim Fitzpatrick book came out. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I must have been incredibly lucky. I mean, I love the pictures of Jim Fitzpatrick, yeah. but he hadn't, he, there wasn't enough for the story. Yeah. But it seems I was incredibly lucky to have found a translation. I got it from the library yeah. somewhere in England. And how on earth I found it, I don't know. Yeah. Because I was always under the impression that uh, the only translation I'd read would be the Elizabeth Gray. Yeah. And you tell me I must have been completely wrong. Yeah, because uh, Elizabeth Gray's translation, which we rely heavily upon, uh, only came out in the 80s. Um, and uh, the, the version that you read... It must have been in the 70s. Yeah. Early and, 70s. And so that must have been Whitley Stokes' translation, yeah, which no comes idea. from the 1890s. I must have been really lucky about to yeah. have found it at all. Yeah. Um, I just loved the story. It had every element of... Uh, it, it was like some great fantasy novel, but real yeah. and much deeper and much more um, much more solid. Yeah. The thing is that Moitura has been quite important to us uh, for a very long time. Yeah, it's, it's part of what actually started us working together. It was. Back in uh, the late 90s, I had this idea that I just wanted to see a recreation. We were involved in battle reenactment mm. anyway at the time. And I really wanted to see that there's this whole story told with reenactment 
um, on the actual site of Moitura in the year 2000. Yeah. And the funny thing is I went off to talk to people, um, various community groups and so forth, and made inquiries and nothing happened. Mm. This would have been in 98, 99, mm. well, 98, I suppose. And then I began to hear this rumour that somebody was planning to do this battle reenactment. Yeah. So I went looking with the local community groups, one or two of the local historical groups, and discovered that the rumour had come from me. <laughs> so we thought, right, this is we ought to do this. Actually, yeah. we, it, it, with the local community groups and various other groups, being 2000, we managed to get sufficient funding yeah, for a year-long project. There was good festival money around. Uh, it was a different time. <laughs> it certainly was. It certainly but was. it was wonderful. I mean, it's far too. There's far too much. To, we can't talk about it now. But it was, it it was terrific because we reckoned that it was the first time the entire story had been told, beginning to end, in one place you know for at least a for a long time years, yeah, yeah. and the battle reenactment was quite fun and the battle puppet well oh, fig, yeah. huge huge giant figure and, yeah oh we got involved all sorts of community groups and there were some of the older people making beautiful the applique wall hangings yeah with images from inspired the story. by the stories yeah. and we did a cross-border play called strength in everyone yes uh, which was great fun. Yeah, for involving children, um, but sort of working between children and adults, and the yeah. script was developed with. But it was kids. half. I suppose really, instead of wandering off into mm. nostalgic distant <laughs> clouds, we ought to actually focus on what we were, we're talking about. Yeah. Um, the, the the point of it all is that we were working on the text for the first time. Yes, and so I was at that time with only my knowledge of modern Irish struggling to try and make sense of some of the uh, still very obscure old Irish poetry. Um, <laughs> it was quite difficult. It was, but it was it was the beginning of a path. Yeah. And whatever I might think now about the script we wrote then... That was fine. It worked. It worked fine. But it did set me on the path for then going and, and getting the proper qualification to be able to do it now. Yeah. Irish, yeah. yeah. But that was all because of that festival in exactly. 2000. Yeah. And because we, we found ourselves... Uh, well, enjoying, but not quite adequate to the task to which we had set ourselves. Yeah. And now coming back to Moitura is, I think, very exciting it for is. us. It is. It's great It's pleasure. something we've been wanting to do for a long time. Yeah. Anyway, we better get on with what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, the two battles, I was looking at those, the idea of those two battles. In a way, they, they represent a duality and a paradox that we're going to meet again and again in our sort of story archaeological excavations, aren't we? Oh yeah, I mean the, the whole saga is completely made up of parallels and paradoxes. Um, mirrors and reflections. Mirrors and reflections, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, you've got the uh, the Cairn of Uchtriel looks with the Well of Uchtriel and you've got the uh, Bresh and Lou. Who Look, hang are on, both... hang on, not too many spoilers. Okay, yeah. Because uh... we're going to have Bresh and Lou coming out of our ears, yeah. not literally. <laughs> over the next podcast episodes um, but this one is we're, we're focusing on Nuada today yes. because he is the leader at the start of the story I suppose you could call him a sort of merchant king buying a buying a share in Ireland and he turns out what's amazing about Nuada is he ends up he's not only important in Ireland he's also uh, one of the uh, continental yeah. figures he, and he even turns up in sort of folklore and even as the fisher king he gets into the grail legends he even ends up in oh I don't know Michael Walcott <laughs> No, 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 I'm you're doing, doing yeah. it. So let's hold something back for the dear listeners. Look, we need to get to know Nuda properly. Yes. Um, but first of all, look, we started talking about those 
translations of this text. Yeah. Um, I want to know exactly where the translation of the text I first read came from. Well, there are two different texts that are a complete telling of the Battle of Maitura. Um, there's one which was can be dated to the 9th century, uh, which is the, the one that a lot of our work is based on. Mm -hmm. And then there's another one in the 14th century. But to have only two kind of manuscript records of a saga that was clearly very important because it, it's referred to over and over, over and again. again. It's absolutely central. It is, it? yeah, within, within the literary tradition, you know, it's it's absolutely central. So to have only two um, actual textual sources for such an important story is quite, makes it quite difficult. Mm. Mm. And there being such a long distance of time between the 9th century and the 14th it's century different as world, well. isn't it? It is. And they're quite different stories. Yeah. Um, the later one, which is in early modern Irish, um, and was published by Brian Cueve uh, in the sort of mid middle of the 20th century, um, is very much more focused around the battle itself. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's just straight into the action, you know, all the blood and gore. Whereas the 9th century text um, is much more about the build-up to the battle, um, about preparations and the consequences afterwards. There's actually far less of, of the, the action. The battle itself is quite short, or the second battle yeah. is quite short, so it's the well, first Both, one. yeah, yeah, exactly. They're they're really quite cursory in But there's way. so much, almost, it's not, not so, well, I suppose it is obscure, but there's mm. so much interesting nuggets of oh, yeah, other stories that yeah. connect up, aren't there? Yeah, and, and this 9th century version, which is the one that, that we work with, um, it was first uh, edited and translated by Whitley Stokes in the 1890s. Goodness no, I still cannot believe that yeah. how I found it. It that. must, that, that can only be, or someone else's kind of reinterpretation of Stokes's translation. That was really the only published English version for a very long time. Mm. And he didn't publish all of it. Uh, he was a little bit uh, squeamish and left out some of the juicier bits, um, which were then uh, put back in by Elizabeth Gray when she published her edition and translation in the 80s. Um, however, it's still not, there still isn't a complete translation available because there are so many passages of very difficult and obscure poetry, uh, some of which was the content of my master yeah. thesis all that that really annoyed me yeah and there is more but yeah. it has not been translated exactly or kings arise to, to battle, battle dot, dot 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 yeah you know or the second part of the of that wonderful uh the chiconier the yes. um the, the prophecy of the morrigan, prophecy of the morrigan yeah. which used to just go but i want to know exactly exactly and so did i you know so, <laughs> <laughs> so there still is a, a lot of those passages are still very difficult but we shall do our utmost to at least give you an outline of what those are like once we come to them. So let's look at the story from the beginning. So once upon a time... Well, it might be a little bit simpler if you just read us <laughs> okay. Elizabeth Gray's translation because okay. this opening it's quite section short at is this quite point. straightforward, yeah. Okay, so here we go. This is the opening of the Battle of Moitura. The Tour de Donham were in the northern islands of the world, studying occult lore and sorcery, juridic arts and witchcraft and magical skill, until they surpassed the stages of the pagan arts. They studied occult lore and secret knowledge and diabolic arts in four cities, Phalias, Gorias, Morias and Findias. There were four wizards in those four cities. Morfessa was in Phalias, Ezras was in Gorias, Ischius was in Findias and Semias was in Morias. These are the four poets from whom the Tuatha learned occult law and secret knowledge. 
<laughs> well, that you can see why I loved it. Yeah. That sounds more like the opening of the of a sort of D and D novel than a start of a great saga. Yeah, well, uh, it is very much more in the realm of something literary rather than something historical. There's been plenty of attempts to link this up with you know the ancient movements of peoples and prehistory, but you really can't look at it. It's not. It doesn't have historicity. It's not um, uh, histrionic. <laughs> Okay, so it's not histrionic. <laughs> it sounds like you're all those sorcerers, witches, diabolic arts. Or is that yeah. just a translation? Well, it is and it isn't. Uh, in terms of the translation, um, we have these phrases like occult lore and secret knowledge and diabolic arts. arts. <laughs> but the occult, what she's translated as occult lore and secret knowledge is just fis and olas. Yeah. And those are still modern Irish words for knowledge. Um, in Old Irish, this is about knowledge through kind of intellectual discovery. Yeah. But Olus is about knowledge that you gain through experience. Okay. So, so it's, it's just knowledge and experience. Knowledge really. and experience, wisdom and technology. Yeah. Um, the, devilry? The devilry, it does say devil donacht, right? So mm -hmm. devilish crafts or devilish arts. Now, I think that might be a bit yeah, let's say creative on the part of the uh, ninth century Christians yeah. who were writing um, down this saga. I think it might originally just have been Donacht. Yeah, Donacht. Uh, as in uh, craft. Craft, yeah, 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 yeah. Even poetry. Yes, you know, but uh, devil poetry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, there, there is a bit of, if you like, uh, well, it has a certain alliterative quality. Exactly, doesn't it? exactly. So you know the. These sagas were written down by Christians. You know, by the ninth century, um, Christianity is very much the norm. You know, it's it's all very well going to look for these kind of ancient pre-Christian really, mythology. It? Yeah, it's already long gone. It's already you know a distant memory. So you don't think it was sort of like deliberate repression of no, the ancient ways? I don't think so at all. No, I think it was just a way to try and understand it. Yeah, and to try and fit it into what they're current understanding of the world was and in fact you know they weren't these prudish kind of uh, censoring Christians because they they wrote with great well, they put in all the body bits yeah they? they wrote with great relish about a lot of sex and violence and bodily functions and all the rest of it there's actually more censorship in Whitley Stokes's 19th century translation which explains why some of the elements and verbal abuse that we discovered in Moitur when we were working on it was completely new to me yeah. uh, when we were working on the script. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean verbal abuse from you, I mean... No, because you're well used to that by now. <laughs> the verbal abuse in the text, some of the ways, mm. it's, it's hilarious. It is, it's wonderful. And it was the first time i come across this, yeah. and that explains a lot of that. Yeah. Anyway, so they came from the four cities in the north. Yes, all in the north. Again, you know, people like to have their patterns, so... You know, they like to think that things are north, south, east and it's west. It's not a classical it's, story. It's not, no. It's 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 an indigenous Irish story. And so all of the cities are in the north. The magic is in the north, yeah. yeah. Now, that's interesting, you know, because I, I, I used to wonder about that. Because you I know, you want correspondences. You want of course. correspondences. You've got to have east, north, south, south yeah. and west and the rest of it. But no, when you stand here at uh, midsummer, mm. or mid, uh, yeah, midsummer, yeah. and look north, standing yeah. in the circle and looking up towards the cairn, what is so strange is that in the north after dark and we're talking about midnight yeah even midnight one o'clock in the morning mm. the sun actually never goes behind more than 12 degrees lower yeah. than the horizon and there's always this weird glow from yeah. the north as if it's going to be dawn any moment mm. and it, i stood there one day looking at this uh in fact i had 
I, I actually put up some pictures somewhere mm. of you can really see the, the sun yeah. just below the horizon. Yeah. And I was thinking, there's a four cities in the north. Mm. You can understand it. So yeah. it's again in the landscape. Yeah, yeah. What and about the, the meanings, the names and meanings of the four cities and the teachers? These strange yeah. words, Murias, Gorias, Findias, Semias, and all the rest of it. Yeah, uh, they, they do sound archaic, and I think they, they're deliberately you know, kept in, in a bit of an archaic form. Those Eos endings are, you know, pretty uh, universally Indo-European and, and Yeah, they're Celtic not like endings. any other words in a way, are they? They're, no, they're... I mean, they, I think that there's probably a little bit, a little um, an aspect of antiquing going on uh, with the names by giving them those endings. Um, but they still do have... Uh, meanings uh, in and of themselves. Okay, well, cities. What about yeah. the names of the four cities? Well, first we've got Phalius, and um, another term, a poetic term that's sometimes used for Ireland is actually Inish Foil. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, that's where we get the, the phrase Fee and the Foil. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Fee and or Warrior Band of Ireland Foil. Um, the, the root meaning. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I know. Be best not to think about that. The root meaning of foil uh, is a fence. Yeah. And so folius and Inish foil is, you might imagine, a, a guarded fenced, island. A, yeah, a fenced city or a fenced mm. island. It uh, goes back Palisaded a bit. Palisaded almost. Yeah, and it goes back to that the idea of Neved as well. So the, the, yeah. the space that is guarded and set apart. The cleared enclosure with a yeah. fence around it. Exactly, yeah, garden. Yeah. Yeah, which is, but again, that's the earliest form of settlement. Yeah, the the go right back to the Bronze Age. Yeah, you look at promontory forts, or you look at and the, Crown Oaks. Yeah, Crown Oaks. Yeah, which is uh, the cleared space. Yes, with the with, with the palisades, wattle yeah. fence, or, or wooden fence. Yeah, so that that would be Folius. Um Findius is uh, Find is a word we know well. Um, it means fair in both mm -hmm. senses. It means fair as in light coloured or or blonde or white uh, but it also means fair and just and just, wise yeah, wise yeah so that's a sort of a, a, a beautiful and wise city mm -hmm. let's say Gorius Gorius um gor is a fantastic word uh, it literally means warmth um but it can in its extended meanings it can be warmth as in affection and also then duty we talk about there's a lot in the law texts about mak or mm. in, even inkan gura which is a dutiful son or daughter so that they, they do the right thing it's almost like for the parents mart, isn't it it that, is that sense of almost exactly that sense of that which is correct yes that's which is right mm. and therefore just and therefore balanced yes but it, it also does have that sense of warmth Warmth is what's critical to it. Yeah, that's because another meaning from gore um, is the the heat of inflammation or infection. <laughs> that's not quite so good, is it? No, and it's it's possible. That's where the English term gore comes from, as in blood and gore. Yeah. Is that kind of something that's hot and a bit sickly? Oh, these things always have double meaning. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and that's then, where the poetry comes in. Morius. Morius. Again, this this has sort of two possible uh, etymologies, let us say. Um, there is, of course, the term muir or muira, which is about the sea or mm -hmm. the seas. Um, and so it could be a sea or seaside city. But then there's also uh, moor, which is a stone or earthen rampart. 
So once again, we have a fortified city. It's interesting, isn't it, that word? Because you, you think of it as like almost the French word, mur. Mm, it's, it's got the same root, yeah. And oddly enough, there are places in Scotland, like the Muir Ford, mm. and the name doesn't come from the French as far as I could see. Well, no, they, they, they share it a root. It is the ancient word, meaning yeah. a walled place. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so with, with that sense of the sea and the sense of the, the walled enclosure, it, it almost suggests a promontory fort. It does suggest that some of those early promontory forts, yes, yeah. which are actually, there's plenty of them in the north, but oh, are yeah. not suggesting no, anything no, literal. No, literal. No, exactly. And then, of course, there's these teachers. These, the teachers, yeah. Now, those, those are small ones there. Morfessa, well, Ezras. Yes. Well, Mor Morfessa, uh, he's also termed Fessus in some other sources. Yeah. And Morfessa just means great knowledge. Great, yeah, yeah. yeah so he, he's the, easy the, one, really. the big teacher. Yeah. The big teacher, yeah. Esrus. Esrus. But this is kind of curious because uh, the only real root I could find was Esser, which it means kind of strewings. Sort of like when you strew reeds or straw either on the floor or in bedding mm -hmm. to make the bedding comfortable. But it's it's really, its root is about sort of distributing, scattering, strewing. Mm -hmm. So... It might be kind of the scatterbrain professor. <laughs> so you've got the uh, the great uh, the one with the knowledge. Yes. The big headed professor. Yes. The scatterbrain professor. Yes. Now this is getting a bit far fetched. <laughs> <laughs> but it is quite nice. Is it? You're beginning to sound like Hogwarts now. Oh dear. Uh, anyway, let's have a look at uh, what was it the other Ischius. two? Ischius. Yeah, this could be. It sounds watery. It but could. It could be ischia, which is just water, yeah. a word for water, fresh water. Um, but it's possible if it's usk rather than ischk, um, that could be to do with fat. <laughs> Don't tell me. So you've got the the big eddy professor, you've got the scatterbrain professor, now you've got the, the skinny, fat, a fat professor. The fat professor, and we might have the skinny professor in Chevius <laughs> because something that is Sev or Chev. Oh, I uh, pronounced it wrong. Don't I? I've given uh, it the traditional. Don't worry. It's it's uh, the the uh, those. Uh, markings of lenition are invisible in this in these texts linguistic oh chef so uh, yeah yeah but if if it's uh or rather if it's save or shave that means slender or narrow or thin <laughs> so you've done it we could have you've got the skinny professor the fat professor the big headed professor and, and the, the scatterbrain one look that's yeah. a bit far-fetched well but the it's other fun. the other the other interpretation is if it's chev and that means a rivet or a bolt something that's a supporter in yeah. fact you know so it's something that is kind of very strong and holds things together so that's but i think a bit more likely <laughs> Yeah, and of course, local folklore, and I have to say local folklore, yeah. has them landing on the top of Schlievenaren, which is the mountain just above us, the Iron Mountain, Yeah, in their cloud-misted ships. Yes, flying ships, of course, yeah. more wonderful. I really am not sure where it came from. Yeah. And actually, I can't track it down, but yeah. it's, everybody knows they landed on Schlievenaren. Well, actually, if you climb the top of Schlievenaren, yeah. which is quite a long way, uh, but the top of it's uh, all eroded bog. Yeah. But the funny thing is, if you stand on the top on a dry day, yeah. you've got, because it's eroded bog, you've got these great dried up fissures. Yeah. That go right across. It looks like skid bog. <laughs> so there's proof if anyone yeah, yeah, wants yeah. to. Don't get me wrong, I'm joking, but it's good fun. You take people up there and go, oh, do you want to see the skid marks? Yeah. 
but I, I don't know. There is a very strong legend that they came, they landed on Schlieveneren, yeah. and that Governor the Smith had his forge yeah. up on the mountain, yeah. which of course, uh, in fact, is a mountain that's been mined for iron. Oh, right absolutely. The there's, quite a lot the of, there's quite a lot of iron in these parts. So, iron you and know, coal. Yeah, so that may well have... The coal mines have gone now completely, mm. and the iron working uh, was only... It had gone more or less by the 19th century. Yeah. But there are places in Dublin, I mean the Hapney Steps were built Hape, on... Hapney Bridge is supposed to be made of iron oh, sorry, from... Sorry, Hapney Steps is in London. Hapney <laughs> Bridge, I mean. It's supposed to be made of iron from Schlieveneren. Yeah. So, uh, you know, well, it's a good story anyway. Yeah. So why don't you read the next section for us? Anyway, but by the way, we're not going to be going through the text line by line like this in future podcasts. It's partly because this the beginning it of just the text with this is, bit. yeah, it's quite compact, but you will always be able to uh, read or access the full text from our blog. And I would recommend that, you know, it would be very good homework for you if you went off and well, read the text for it's yourself. Quite, it's actually quite simple yeah. in, in, in itself, mm. and it's but it's there just in case you go, what were they talking about? Exactly, yeah. Which is what we do all the time, we have to keep the text <laughs> with us all the time. Um, go on anyway. But anyway, the they, they brought some good stuff They did, them. yeah. So here we go. From Phalias was brought the Stone of Fal, which was located in Tara. It used to cry out beneath every king that would take Ireland. From Gorias was brought the spear which Lou had. No battle was ever sustained against it, or against the man who held it in his hand. From Findias was brought the Sword of Nuada. No one ever escaped from it once it was drawn from its deadly sheath, and no one could resist it. And from Murias was brought the Dagda's Cauldron. No company ever went away from it unsatisfied. So those are pretty handy uh, objects. Oh, it's to the have. treasures. The, the four treasures. I mean, the, the, yeah. the treasures are great, and they've been the source again of so much uh, writing and novels and well, folklore. They turn up everywhere. Yeah, like in Alan Garner's Elador. For oh one. Yeah. yeah. Now that that actually that inspired me years ago. You know, we were talking about um, two thousand when we did the Moitra yes. and the, the strength in everyone. The, 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 the cross border yeah. play we did with yeah. children from Ancragan and uh, up near Oma yeah. and uh, Sligo, mm. and I wanted a story there, so I decided that the best thing was to take the Morrigan's second prophecy, yes. which is all about the end, the end of the world, world. Yeah. and uh, have her turn up mm. in the middle of something else the children were doing and uh, announce that this was all going to happen unless they could find the four treasures. Yes. And, uh, you know, they, they have to find them where they are. They can't get out of the hall and they have to find them and make them from whatever they've got around them. Yeah. So picked up on the Elidor idea. Mm. And what did we have? Um, there was there the... was a bucket for the cauldron. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, and a mop for the oh, spear. Oh, yeah, which caught fire. Of course, naturally. Yeah, um, a flaming mop, that was which I had to fight with. Yes. Yeah, it was yeah, great fun. Yeah. And then there was, oh, yeah, we had real... Tr- what was the, 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 the trouble sword. was the sword. Yeah. We couldn't think. And so finally we decided that it was for protection. Yeah. And we used a fire extinguisher. Perfect. This is where we have the protection. Protection. That will be, be ridiculous. ridiculous. Oh, yes. Yeah, we're back again. <laughs> Sorry. We're, but we've left out one. The stone. The stone. stone. What was... Do you I, know, I think that came into some... We were, there was a lot of stage magic involved. There was a lot of yeah, stage yeah. magic, yeah. But it, it did get across that uh, it's not about the actual swords and spirits, it's about mm. what they represent. Mm. And in fact, things like the Stone of Foil, the Inish, or the sorry, the Leah Foil, uh, which in the text there says is at Tara, uh, well, the Scots claim to have it as well. <laughs> no, the, now, in the Stone of Schoon. Or is or now, may we be able, well be in Westminster Abbey. Exactly, yes. Well, it's just a stone. There, or a there scone was, of stone. Yes. That scone. <laughs> there were so many 
There were a lot of crowning stones. Exactly. I mean, they turn up everywhere. Yeah. I can think of more than one in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And so they are all... Or rock. Yeah, they're all Leofoil. You, you sit know. on a piece of rock and yeah. every region has its own. Yeah. I uh, spent uh, oh, a good uh, 18 years of my life living in Kingston-upon-Thames in England. Yes. And there is the Saxon crowning stone. Oh, yes. On which Ethelred the Unready was crowned. My Everyone's favourite Saxon king. Yeah, it means unwilling, not I unready. Know. But it's much more fun. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, they, they, they're great stories. And again, I mean, the cauldron. Yes. It is the great cauldron that, uh, the cauldron of Bran, it's the grail. Yeah. It's the origin, one of the origins of the grail stories. It turns up in the Welsh stories. Mm. And that on the continent. And on con that cauldron is everywhere. And it's in Santa's sack as well, I do. Yeah, believe. you know, it's, oh, and um, it's the crane skin bag. Yeah. It's all of these things. It's, yeah. you, oh, for goodness sake, this would make an episode on its own. It would, yeah, we could go on Just about the these. four treasures. Well, they're, they're also known in the Irish tradition as the four jewels of mm -hmm. the Tour de Dame. I suppose it's it's a question of translation, really, you know, whether you translate it as jewel or treasures. But uh, there's quite a lot that's been written in the academic literature about the four jewels mm -hmm. of the Tour de Dame. And um, a, a description of those uh, four treasures and where they came from does appear in several uh, sources. So you'll have sort of a prose description and then there's poetry about them all. Um, interestingly, in one of them that is published by Vernon Hull, um, it switches around who had the sword and who had the spear. It says that Nuada yeah. had the spear and Lou had the sword. They seem to be a little bit interchangeable, yeah, don't they? Yeah, although it does have an interesting kind of hint that the sword was deadly after it had wounded Nuada. So, yeah. which is a bit curious. Well, that would tie up with the whole Fisher King. Exactly, uh, yeah. The wounded King. The wounded King, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot more to that. They are incredibly central to the whole, they really not are. just the Irish mm. um, stories, but also the whole continental Celtic stories. Yeah. The, these four treasures seem to be almost like the central tenets yes. of the whole lot. Absolutely. They're, they're very deeply important, which is why they're mentioned right at the beginning of this story. I got them tied story. up with some Brendan once, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. That's another story as oh, well. Oh, gosh, yeah. <laughs> We all really ought to come back to that one yeah, at a we, future date. We may well indeed. So what about this battle then? We well, haven't got there yet. Well, we have reached the first battle now. Right. We've got to the Battle of Southern Moitura. Yeah. Well, it's it's not referred to as the first Battle of Moitura or Southern Moitura in this text. No, it wouldn't be really, would it? Well, no, because uh, that, it, there's the other one to come. It's it's later that this conflict, this meeting um, about between the two of the when they first come to Ireland is then later referred to as either the first battle of Witcher yeah, yeah, yeah. or I think it's an old battle Witcher. though. It is a bit, yeah. Uh, let's see what it says. Yeah. The two of the came with a great fleet to Ireland to take it by force from the Fibolic. Upon reaching the territory of Corku Belgadum, which is Connemara today, they at once burned their boats so they would not think of fleeing to them. The smoke and the mist which came from the ships filled the land and the air which was near them. For that reason, it is a thought that they arrived in clouds of mist. Now there's a rationalisation for you. Absolutely, yeah. And you do get that within some of these saga texts where the, the scribe or the, the narrator seems to have this slightly smug kind of that's the way that the, the ignorant tell the story but we know why it really happened. Yeah, the old story about they landed through the in the clouds yeah, on the top of a mountain. Yeah. But no, 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 that, no that's, that's just peasant ignorance, that is. <laughs> it's a good story though. It is. And in fact, the, the Four Jewels uh, text contains an alternate rationale for why they burned the boats. It still has that thing about they burned the boats and mm -hmm. they filled the land with smoke and mist. But interestingly, it says that they did it so that the Fomorians wouldn't use the boats, mm, but also sense. so that Lou would not come to Ireland to contend with Nuada for the kingship. Now that is interesting. 
interesting that, and I think yeah. we'll come back to that when we're, we're focusing on Lou. Yes. Because if you think about it, there's Lourdes of the King yes. and there's a, almost suggesting that there is someone in the background yes, who might take over yeah. and they're not sure whether this is a good idea or not. Exactly, yeah. So, and since this we'll discover later that Lou is in fact half Fomorian. Yes, yeah. Um, there's going to be tension there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, let me just let's finish that yeah. section because it's, it's only short. Yeah. The Battle of Moitura was fought between them and the Fibolog. The Fibolog were defeated and a hundred thousand of them were killed, including the king, Yakit Makak. Yeah, it's quite a high death toll. Uh, the Fibolog, men of the bag, spear, bellies, or Galway, what do you think? Well, they could even be Belgians. Um, one one idea is that the Fibolog, the men of Bolog, could be the same route as Belgae, from which we get the Belgians. Yeah. Bolg, in its sort of most basic sense, means a bag. Well, they've talked about these men who um, arrived here and carried bags of earth from the place they arrived at, yeah. they come from. From the Leprechafala, the Book of Invasions. Weird, yeah, they talk about how the Fearbolg were enslaved in Greece, and they but they carried great bags of Irish soil to make a plain fertile or something like that. But it sounds like rationalisation again. Yeah, it's all a little bit mysterious, you know, because bulg is also commonly used as stomach, you know. But mm -hmm. so um, the the big bellied men. Yeah, the the one about the spear is a bit of uh, transference, really, from uh, the description of the guy bulg, which was a kind of pronged spear. But it's the guy part of guy bulg that means spear. It may well be a spear that's good for disemboweling. You know, yeah, and so yeah. the bollock then gets trans transferred, transferred onto yeah. the spear. And of course, it's just Galway always reckons that the people there reckon their descendancy from the, from the, the fear bollock. Yeah, well, <laughs> so yeah, you know, you go Galway. Like... Yeah, but also uh, this version doesn't mention one of my favourite bits. Oh, how yeah. they uh, when they met, they eyed each other up. Yeah, and they compared their weapons to see whose was longer or bigger or more effective. Yes, and then they went away for a year and didn't battle mm. until they'd each got equal weapons. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, which doesn't sound like a battle as we would imagine it it's it's much more diplomatic yeah you know and it's much more about everything must so be where equal. does that version come from well it's yeah as i said it's not in our text it does come from the Levergavola tradition the the book of invasions and there are many versions complete versions of the Levergavola from yeah as you said sources. though there are only two two full versions of the text of, of Moitura the yeah. Moitura bits of it are mentioned everywhere exactly, so it's yeah. obviously a really really well Very known important. text yeah and, and this business of if you like the first battle or the southern battle is much more expounded upon yeah, within yeah. the whole book of invasions Levergavola tradition so we can uh, I mean we can get all sorts of other details about yeah. what was part of the original story or yeah. what was part of the canon of the story exactly not original story mm. but that that sort of the context the context of it and how uh, from other places exactly yeah there was you're right there was a high death toll though i mean a hundred thousand compared to the number in the second battle yeah which is infinite more or less and what stars in the sky greater Grit. sand or, yeah yeah so this is a not not historical no of course not and a hundred thousand is just a big sounding number but it does name some specific people who were killed in this battle um we already heard about Jochen mcgark who was the um the king of the mm -hmm. Fear Bullock. But then it goes on to mention four names of the Dedanan who were killed in this battle. And we have Edlo Macale, uh, we have Tyrell Bigro, we have Fiacha, and we have Erin Moss. 
Mother of the Morrigan. Yeah, now Erin Moss is so mentioned within this text. She's cited as the mother of the Morrigan and the mother of Macha as well within this text. Maybe one of the reasons why they get conflated. Exactly, exactly. So she's kind of a, an, an ancestral figure, figure. For, for those Are they all ancestral women. figures? They, I think they probably, yeah, in fact they are, because Tyrrell Bikro is, um, well, he's the father of the sons of Tyrrell. Yeah, yeah. Um, who another story? It is. It's. it's I'll get into that one. No, 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 no. no. I mean, that's Cullach and Alwyn type level. <laughs> but uh, it, it's still cited. The the story of the Sons of Terran is cited as one of the three great sorrows of Irish storytelling. Mm -hmm. But it's the one that's the least known. Mm. So we'll have to have a look at that one sometime. Yeah, I think so. that'd be fun. But um, so he's obviously another. Uh, ancestral figure. I don't know about Fiacha. I haven't managed to track him down yet because mm -hmm. it doesn't give us a kind of a, a full name no, in that sense. No, no, it, it's, so, it's tricky that one. Yeah, so he's a bit kind of obscure. If anyone has ideas on that, please do get in touch. Um, but this Ethelo Magala, I think, is quite uh, interesting because uh, although we don't have much about him per se, he seems to be related to Nate who was oh, Balor's grandfather. This is an ancient figure. Absolutely. And Nade, who is partnered with Nevin, um, seemed to be everyone's grandma and granddad. Yeah, yeah. It's, and both the Fomora and the Dadan, as we'll see later. Yeah, they exactly. are very close kin. Yeah, and, and so Ezlo is, uh, he might be, you know, another member of that clan. Yeah, but say. what you're getting here, you know, the same way as they burn their boats, yeah. it's almost as though they, they get they rid of lose... that and they lose their ancestors. Yeah. They are now firmly rooted in this land. Yeah, yeah. And their ancestors and their boats are no mm. longer... Yeah. relevant to their new life yeah yeah that i find interesting it is yeah and of course after the routing of the fearbug it says that they flee to uh, islands particularly around the north and east yeah, so Aaron. Aaron and eilie and rathlin yeah. um which are very much on the fringes yeah. you know some of them are almost scotland they're you know that much of the so again edge. you've got the there is this weird touch not her historicity but there mm. is this touch of almost it could have been memories of yeah well changes and and, and displacement dis yeah you know that the because the, 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 that's what always happens to survivors they flee yeah. to the margins they, they go to the edges exactly yeah, yeah and the in-between places we ought to get back to what's most relevant to this theme in this episode that that of Nuda losing his hand it's sort of the main thing it is i mean there, there are still other important themes that we will be picking up on again and again there's the the mirroring that this is the first battle where Nuada, two yeah where Nuada is leading it's the southern big battle isn't it yeah it is it's 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 his leadership with the Daedalan um which comes to an end at the end of this section of course mm -hmm. um with the losing of the hand um and it also shows that important kind of diplomatic very uh, ceremonial type encounter as opposed to the second battle which, which is, is more sort of magical yeah well it's more magical but it's also more aggressive in some way you know yeah it is it's 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 like you've got the division of the land in half mm. you've got this this the it's, two groups always twos and mirroring and... yeah and and in a lot of the kind of Lavagravala type traditions and and beyond that there are a lot of stories about dividing the land of ireland in half there's a lot about the southern half and the northern half you know there's one about i think 
common mug. Mug, yeah. Yeah. Um, the mug getting the southern half and con getting well, the later top on, the half. Later on, the, the Donans getting the below ground yeah. and the, and the Sons of Mill on the, get getting the, the above ground. ground which yeah. Sounds like, Sounds like a bad deal, that does. It does, yeah, it does a bit. But, you know, the, the, <laughs> that's another story. It, it, it is. So there's all that kind of sense of, you know, the, that there are two worlds coming into contact or, you know, two cultures and um, giving, again, that... Balance and yeah. mirroring. Yeah, but let's get back to the making of the hand, because yeah. I think this one's fun. It, it's good. Uh, one, yeah. It's also where you first get to meet the four craftsmen. Yeah. And who, in a way, these four craftsmen, who I know you want to say more about, is, um, oh, it's a bit like there were four teachers. Yeah. And, and now there are four craftsmen. Mm. Um, look, who are these four craftsmen? Why are they so important? Well, um, the four craftsmen we're talking about, we're talking about Dean Cates, who is known as the physician or the healer. And in this, he's working with Credna Caird, who's known as the brazier or the worker with soft metals. You've got Govnu, the smith, who's terribly important, and then uh, Luchta. And uh, who's kind but of... These four are central, aren't they? They really are. And there's, a, there's even law texts that we know of. There were four law texts known as the Bretha Dean Cates, or Bretha Dean Cates, the judgments of... Cake, and there were that's the only one that we still have or right. have fragments but there of. Were, there but might there have been were, one for each of them. There were, uh, they're referred to. There's, there's also then the, the Breath of Govnan and the Breath of Luchta and Breath of Credna Caird. So they were seen as very important, and the, the, those law texts would refer to their various professions. The Breath of Dainkate are about illness and medicine, you know. Um, and we can get I think maybe a, a, a bit more of a sense of it from looking at their names as well. Uh, we did in a previous podcast looked at how Dean Kate is the eager plough, which might seem a bit surprising for someone who's supposed to be a healer. Yeah, so that's a deep one, that one. It is, yeah, and refer back to our podcast about the story oh, of Aravid. Yeah, yeah, uh, which we will touch on again in this series, but because he comes into the story, of course. So she, this this is her story too. Yeah, um, and then we've got Gaifnu who is the, the smith um, and his name seems to be about beaks and pointiness um, uh, I think it's to do with the, the point of a, a spear. He's putting a point on things isn't Yeah, it? making a point Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, Credna Caird then who's usually, it's, he's usually translated as a brazier, it's a little bit unclear what the Caird part might mean because it's a general term Dealing with soft metals craft. Yeah, I think it's soft soft metals such as gold bronze and gold and silver and so on um but the credna bit the the root of that seems to be some kind of framework um, interesting yeah so it's sort of putting the underlying skeleton or structure onto things uh, which is why it's interesting that it's he who cooperates with uh, the Inkert in making this prosthetic hand mm. um and then luchta well, it's made of a soft you know, it's, it's the silver the yeah. framework of the soft metal and yeah. silver yeah it's one of his but it also has that kind of I don't know skeletal type it's very interesting uh, yeah um, Luchtadan who's usually translated as a carpenter uh, or sawyer which again is one of these sorry that's an Irish word sawyer not the English word sawyer yeah 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 um, Again, Sawyer just means work or craft, but it's usually applied to carpenters. Um, but his name, Lucht, uh, is about um, stuff, for want of a better <laughs> word. <laughs> but it's very often associated with shipbuilding. shipbuilding. So you've got the smith, yeah. the shipwright, yeah. the frame maker, yeah. and, uh, and the healer. And the healer, but also to do with agricultural yeah, yeah, development. Yeah. yeah. 
uh, it, you know, it's interesting. You've got the people of craft mm. who we've said before and will say many times yeah. that they don't exist till they start making things. Exactly. Yeah. So it's almost like the four teachers are theory. Yeah. And as they come into the world, as they come to Ireland, yeah. they start making things. So they become the people. Yeah. And suddenly you've got this um, technology. Exactly. It's all about technology. It's as if they're changing the world by... Yeah, by magic, but the magic is the magic of technology. Yeah. And what's interesting is the smithing of metal and the smithing of words yeah. equally shape the world. So Absolutely. you've got the poetry and the technology mm. that they bring that makes them this people of craft. Exactly, and, and the two are day darnan, the darn bit, which is a craft or a poem, and usually both. It's very much at the core of who they are. They are the people who make things. Yeah. And that's interestingly so, coincides with how, if you like, human beings are reckoned as a species. So they've got rid of their ancestor figures, as mm, it were, mm. and now they are the actual, the, you know, the artisans. Yeah. Almost these uh, culture heroes, mm. the greatest of them, are artisans. Yes. That's what I love about it. Yes. And that medicine and poetry uh, are, are as much part of the artisan skill. Mm. Or you can talk it the other way around. They're the highest things. Yes. The highest skills. Yeah. I love that. And it means that they're, they're the the shapers and the makers of the world. Oh yeah. So in the forging of Doida's hands, you've yeah. got the healer and the metal work cooperate. Mm. That's right, shapers and makers. Mm. One other thing that reoccurs to me with the way that Nuada loses his position as king but gets this magical hand, it's very reminiscent of the Paralympics and of course <laughs> yeah. Paralympian year um, where you have a figure like Oscar Pistorius who's now very well known. Pretty amazing. Yeah, well, mind you, there were some amazing. Yeah, I, he's, he's often referred to as the Blade Runner because he has these extraordinary prosthetic blades, as he terms them, which were specially designed to enable him to be a sprinter. Um, but it's one of these things whereby, you know, he starts off at a disadvantage because of being not having the legs that people expect a normal human being to have. Um, and then he compensates for that with this piece of technology, which then puts him above the level of people who were just born with their own legs. Um, and while it makes him better, it also excludes him from the mainstream Olympics. So he's our modern Noida. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, with Noida as well, he gets That's this an interesting magical course. advantage, but then is excluded so from these the So superheroes and the superpower yeah. Olympians. Yeah, it's a good parallel, really. Yeah. Now, he only has his silver hand for a short time, doesn't he? But it, it kind of defines him. It, it does. He's always referred to as Nua the Law of Aragad, of yeah, the when silver you, hand. When you think of Nua of the silver hand, yeah. you think of this image with this wonderful silver hand. Yeah. But in uh, fact, he gets a flesh and blood hand back quite quickly. But that suggests to me that it is somehow central to who central he is. Central to his image. So yeah. look, let's see. Let's just recap and see what Nuda artifacts we've got in our small finds tray. Yeah. And how they tell us about what his story actually is. Yeah. And as usual, one of our primary finds is around understanding the name. name. The name is always the first, you know, if you yeah. can find the name, yeah. you know, this is almost, the names are almost like our pieces of pottery. Absolutely, yeah, that, that give us our dating, etc, etc. Nuada uh, is very directly related to British and continental Celtic figure of Nodens. Mm -hmm, mm. Um, now, funnily enough, our, our dear friend J.R.R. Tolkien uh, made an attempt uh, at um, analysing... Yeah, because he was involved in the digs in Lydney, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, so he, he made an attempt at a ling linguistic analysis, even though he was working really 
before the uh, Indo-European, before Proto-Indo-European had been really cons- constructed. Yeah. yeah. So he was relating it to a Ger- Germanic root uh, of nodont, um, which is about acquisition and uh, having the use of something. Mm. So he grasping or reaching, yeah, out for or something exactly, and acquiring. Yeah. And he he did make that connection with um, myth or 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 slith in the Welsh and with Nuada in the Irish. And he was actually pretty much on the money, if you'll forgive the pun. Um, (laughs) That's when Julius Pocorny, who is very much more involved in the whole sort of study of Indo-European, has put both Nuada, Nodans, the whole lot, has brought back to this Proto-Indo-European route of Nuid, which originally seems to be about hunting and fishing. Mm. And that kind of, you know, acquisition or acquiring Going getting. Yeah, go and get it. Mm. You know, so... You ought to mention that, for anyone who doesn't know, that Nith. Nith. Nud. Yes. Because it's spelled N-U-D-D. Yeah. This is quite quite a curious little bit of linguistic wrangling. Basically, the the Welsh equivalent of Nuada or the the Celtic Nodans is originally Nith, but he also has a silver hand, and so he's called Nithlaugrifus. Which apology for my Welsh pronunciation. And actually, that's also applied to Lou sometimes. Well, you see, this is the thing: is that because <laughs> he was Nith Chlaugrifus, they liked alliteration as the Irish did, so he turned into Chlith Chlaugrifus. <laughs> and of course, when it got if it got written down or passed on yes. by non-Welsh speakers, yes, of course, then... Nith is spelled N-U-D-D. Yeah, so it was Nud or L-U-D-D, which is Lud, Lud yeah. which is very likely to have given the name London. London, yeah. And Ludgate Hill. And, yeah. uh, and, and oddly enough, the hills, it's one of the oldest hills in London and mm. is very clearly one of the founding places. Yeah. And uh, it it is suggested that this is where London comes from, yes. which is a misunderstanding of the pronunciation of the word because you're a very long way from Nuada yeah. to London. Yeah. And yet there is a connection. <laughs> there is, indeed, yeah. It, it's a weird one. It's, it's, again, it's quite complicated. Yeah. But what we've got, I, I, I'm trying to sort of get at what we've actually got. So what we've got to recap is mm. acquisition yes. and or of or by silver. Yes, the, I think this, the silver, this is why him being Noah the Law of Aragad or Nithlaugrifus is, I think, crucial to understanding. Yeah, well, him. isn't the, the word for silver in Ireland, yeah. in Irish, it's still the general word for money to this day, still, isn't it? Coinage. It's still Aragad. Yeah. Aragad, which is, you know, so the silver. word for money is money. silver. Yeah, and so we, we might have here um, the, this leader coming to Ireland and bringing with him this means of acquisition through silver, through his silver hand. And so it might... Money. Yeah, it might be talking about an introduction of coinage or of currency now, to Ireland. I mean, as we know from the whole currency of cows, yes. the cows are current as currency. Yeah, coinage wasn't generally used in. Ireland, no, was it, it? no, there there was more of a, a, a more generalized currency conversion system through various goods and chattels and what have you. Um, coinage per se was introduced by the Vikings, essentially by the Norsemen, uh, when they started immigrating. Or around that 
period. And it was around the time of the writing of our saga, around the ninth century, that the the uh, the Norsemen came over, and so they might have brought with them this innovation. It does sound as though there's an influence on the text. That, 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 again, yeah. conflating of ideas. Exactly. That 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 kind of brought it to mind. I like, if you it, like. though. That Lourdes Silver Hand is. I, t I mentioned him as like the Merchant King. Yeah. And yeah. trading. I think you've got several levels. It's exactly. Possible to sort out because all we know of Nodens in terms of the English, because mm. as I say, he's not really an original Irish figure, is he? Well, I mean, he's, he's a he's continental... He's borrowed from our Celtic neighbours, yeah. really. But there's the... He's well known that the Roman Temple of Lydney, mm. um, which, again, was, was where I think Tolkien was working. And mm. that's odd because that's associated, as far as we know, with dreaming, yes. going overnight to gain... Um, inspiration through dreaming or mm. get answers to what you want in in terms of dreaming and, of and course, there of course you've got the, the nip the nod yeah and the land of nod the land of nod we're still talking well we talk about nodding off to sleep for one thing it's amazing that that should have gone on to this day absolutely yeah but the romans were very good about attaching uh, older gods or goddesses to yeah. these figures in the landscape yeah. well you can see that with um Sulis minerva in bath, bath yeah they, they would recognize the local figure and they'd kind of graft yeah. on their own i prefer ideas. to call them figures in the landscape yeah. rather than gods and goddesses exactly. because they were very much genie loki yeah you know, very local. Just figures in the landscape mm. that formed and made the landscape. Yeah. But the Romans are really good at taking these on board and making the best use of them. Oh, and yeah. I, the same thing seems to have happened at Lydney. Yeah. And it's it's interesting this whole business of the dreaming and sleep. It took I, I wasn't quite sure how this fitted in with what we were looking at with the new the Nodens root. It's a long way from a warrior <laughs> with a silver hand. Isn't it, it is. It is. But if if we think about the acquisition and you know grasping and getting. It might be as simple as dreaming as in wishing, as in you go to the place of Nodens with a very firm wish, dream or desire and uh, Nodens is the one who, you know, puts it into your hand, yeah, it's a goes thought. and gets it for it's you. It's a thought. It's, it's difficult to tell, but all, these, all you can do it's is sort of come up with ideas yeah. and speculation. Yeah. Certainly, this um, he's, Nodens is recognised as one form of the Fisher King. Well, yeah, and, and of course with Nuido, he does come from the sea, for a start, it comes from over the sea. Um, and we have that linguistic route that goes back to the hunter or the fisher. And so, you know, the, the silver then, it could be, you know, a fishing spear or even a, you know, a fish hook, as simple as that. Yeah, it couldn't you be know. a metal plow tip, really, could it? it? it well, no, I don't think the silver is really the best metal for, for a, a plough. I think that's no, definitely this where is you a bit the going iron. off the. But get back to the Fisher King. Yeah. I mean, that's a major figure. And again, he's the wounded king. Yeah. You know, who creates the wasteland. Yes. In uh, the broader aspects of Arthurian mythology, mm. which again is, is a very Celtic, right, Europe, continental. Absolutely. British, British Celtic, yeah. Uh, and the, the Welsh versions are slightly different, but it really does, there's something there. Look, mm. I think it's too com too too complex to talk yeah. about now, but I might put a, an article on the blog on uh, the, the, the Fisher King, yeah. the Wasteland and the Wounded King, because I think it would be more interesting to bring those and the connection between the names together yes. at that point. Yeah. Now, what you were saying was that Nuada seems to be borrowed or co-opted from our Celtic neighbours, yeah. either on the continent or in Britain, um, but actually, considering Lou himself is co-opted in exactly the same way, I don't find that surprising. Mm. They're both sort of exotic celebrities. Yeah, they're shiny foreigners. And of course, in Ireland, we, we've always looked to the shiny foreigner to, to show us 
the way. We've, we've always been inviting in leaders from other parts of the world, whether they be Norman or Viking. <laughs> I'm not going to comment on that, but I will say that exactly the same thing happened in England. Yeah. I mean, after all, the, the, the Romans were invited. Exactly. Yeah. Because they had good stuff that nobody else had. Yeah, they have And nice... the Normans, I'm not quite sure about that. I mean, they kind of uh, cheated over a oh, yeah, bag but... of bones. <laughs> <laughs> but there's always that kind of promise of the, of the exotic and overseas. It must be better than what we have. Well, they, they always bring shiny stuff with them. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose Lou and Nuda carried all sorts of shiny oh, ideas. Yeah. Silver and, and gold. And they looked kind of good. Yeah. Um, but in which case, who was the indigenous leader, you think? Well, I think that what sort of lies underneath that, now that we might have to do a bit of digging to get down to this particular stratum, but my feeling is that the Dagda would have been, if you like, the original uh, mythical high king over Ireland. He's certainly referred to in a lot of texts and stories and mm. sagas as the High King of Ireland and of the Tua de Dana. Yeah, there's a lot here, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to, as I say, this is a much deeper stratum. So we'll have to and we'll come back to this in a later podcast yeah. after we've really told the story. I think that one's going to be interesting. Yeah. But we'll be finding out who's native and who's borrowed, yeah. I think. It might be interesting, mm. seeing if we can construct a possible proto-story. Yeah. Uh, speculatively, of course. Absolutely. Anyway... What happens to Nuada? Because his story isn't open. No. He's there for the whole duration. He is. He gets his uh, flesh hand put back on him. Attached, reattached by the very brilliant Biak, son yes. of Dean Kect. Yes. But of course, he, he by yeah. that time, he's lost the kingship. Um, but he still leads the Daedanon until uh, the, the even younger, shinier. That's right. His leadership's comes. handed over first to Bresh. Yes who is next week's subject, yeah. uh, or next time's subject, and then there is, uh, then Lou. Then Lou comes along and, and is given uh, the leadership through the second battle, uh, which Nuada fights in. And then Nuada finally dies a hero's death, killed yes. by Balor at the yes. second battle of Oitura. Exactly. So the, the, he's still got a bit of story to go. So we will be doing a chronological telling of the whole story of the Battle of Moitura over the next number of episodes, each one focusing on a different main character. Mm. And after that, we're going to explore some of the themes and the images and ideas, the, and ideas the that, that come out over the, the following episodes. Now, we'll try and make the chronology as clear as possible. Yeah, but it, it probably would be a good idea if you went and looked up the full text Well, it'll be for there yourself. if you feel like needing it, because yeah. we have to have it with us all time. Yeah. Um, just so we can keep checking. So it's easy to look at. So welcome to one of the most rewarding of all the story archaeological sites in the whole of Irish mythology. Now next time we'll be meeting Bresh. Beautiful, silly and Fomorian. Thank you for listening to Ogilaf Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com. <laughs>